my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, for I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, well, good morning, everyone. Uh, hey, just a few moments ago, we saw the Life at Work uh, conference video. Just want to encourage you to get along to that if you, if you can uh, next year in February. Uh, not only good content at those conferences, I've been along to some uh, in the past. I've, I've got my ticket for next year already, uh, but also just a good chance to meet and connect with other Christians who are seeking to live for Jesus in the workplace. Uh, there's, there's all sorts of relationships, opportunities, ideas that bounce out of conferences like this. So if you can, just uh, make the most of that. If I haven't met you, my name's Andrew. And uh, if you're joining with us today, you've joined us uh, towards the end of a series um, that we've been going through in the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. Uh, for a number of weeks now, we've been delighting in the details of how God established David's kingdom in, in Israel about 3,000 years ago. But even more than that, uh, through this book, we've been delighting in the way uh, that it points us to Jesus, uh, the, the promised offspring of David, the one who God has appointed our great king forever. Well, this morning we are continuing this series, but we've actually jumped out of 2 Samuel for, for one week. And instead, we're looking at this psalm that was inspired by the events of it. Uh, and by that, I mean David's sinful taking of Bathsheba and then the sin upon sin that followed after that. Uh, last week, we looked at all of that in, in a lot of detail, 
And if you've got your Bibles there, you'll, you'll see it's written uh, in the inscription just above this psalm as the context for it. Now, it could be easy to read that inscription and think, oh, this psalm is just all about David and his sin. And it is, uh, but it's not in the Bible for just that reason, of course, is it? It's also there as gift and instruction for us to help us know how to consider and repent and confess of our own sin and to help us uh, know the incredible mercy and grace of God. And so on that note, let's pray together and ask that we discover those things in our time today. Well, Father, just a few weeks ago, we considered another prayer of David. Uh, it was a prayer in which he was just overwhelmed at your grace to him, that you would give him a, a dynasty, a line forever. Uh, Father, a few weeks before that, we considered another psalm of David, uh, a psalm he wrote when he became the king, a psalm full of pledges and promises about the sort of king he'd be, a king who would honour you first and, and be a man of integrity, a king who would walk with integrity in his house, he'd be careful to see what he set his eyes on, a king who would know nothing of evil. And Father, today we consider another portion of your word, uh, another psalm you inspired, this time a prayer born out of a much darker moment in David's life. Father, this psalm is humbling and challenging and convicting and comforting. And we pray that you would use it in our hearts for all of those things today. Above all, would you help us to behold your grace to us in Jesus all the more? And we ask all this for his sake. Amen. I heard a helpful illustration this week and that it was in terms of confession and repentance of sin, our hearts can be a bit like those wooden trains with the magnets on the front and back. Uh, now, I presume everybody knows which ones I have in mind. There's a picture there in case you need a reminder. If you've played with them, you'd remember that these trains are quite amazing uh, because uh, they look quite simple, but they're quite amazing in that if you get the train and the carriage lined up the right way, the magnets will kind of pull together and hold on tight and the grip is strong enough to be able to drag the, the carriages all the way around the track. But, but if you flip the train the other way around, well, it's like this is invisible force that prevents them coming together, that kind of pushes it away. Uh, you might remember as a kid trying to turn the train around, see if you can push the, the carriages all the way around without them touching. Well, in this illustration, the preacher, he noted that in regards to our hearts and sin, we can be a bit like the trains that, and carriage that, that attract and hold on tight. But when it comes to our hearts and repentance, we can be a bit like the opposite. Uh, by nature, we can find ourselves pushing away from confession and repentance, doing all we can to avoid it. I wonder if that's something you can relate to. Do you find it so easy to fall into sin and so you find yourself so naturally inclined to push away from repentance? Perhaps you're here this morning and it's actually the notion or the idea of sin that you're inclined to avoid or push away. Uh, certainly the message of our times is that sin is just this old archaic idea that everyone should be right to, to choose what's right and wrong for themselves. And some of us may be in, inclining towards that view, grappling with that pull. Alternatively, perhaps you're here this morning and you're at the other end of the sin spectrum. You know you haven't been living as God intended and no matter how hard you try and subdue your feelings, the shame and guilt of your choices and actions is just eating you up on the inside. Maybe you're wondering if you can ever be free of such things, if God could ever love someone like you. 
whichever of those you find yourself today, I just want to say really glad you are here. And wherever you find yourself this morning, uh, through this psalm, God has something to say to each of us. So in terms of an outline for today, well, rather than just walk through the psalm bit by bit, instead we're going to consider four questions that are raised and addressed by it. Uh, they're four sort of simple but profound questions. Uh, first one is, why is sin such a big deal? What actually is it? Secondly, what is the basis of David's hope in light of his despicable sin? Thirdly, how does hyssop help with sin? Uh, verse 7, you might have seen that word there and thinking, what has that got to do with, with anything? Uh, verse 7 has been described as the least understood but the most important verse of this psalm. I'd, I'd say arguably most important. There's lots of important verses. Uh, but finally, verse 4, what does true repentance look like? So if you're looking for a simpler outline, sin, hope, hyssop, repentance. Uh, now, as I mentioned last week, we looked at in detail at David's sin, but because it's explicitly mentioned as the background for this psalm, I'm just going to briefly run through again what happened uh, as some context. Uh, if, if you weren't here last week, you want to read up on the details, uh, you can find it in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Okay, here we go. So in 2 Samuel 11, we're told that at the, the time the kings go to war, David doesn't. Uh, he sends his soldiers to war, he sends his generals to war, but he stays home relaxing in the palace. Uh, now, like it can for us, this idleness, it quickly proves fertile ground for sin to sprout in David's life. And the sin that sprouts is lust. Uh, he sees a woman bathing when he goes for a walk on the roof and he decides he must have her. Uh, despite the fact that he's married and he discovers that she's married too. Well, she's brought to him on the king's orders and, and they do have sex. And when she later sends message that she's pregnant, well, this sets King David into a cover-up frenzy. A cover-up frenzy that involves scheming and deceit. A cover-up frenzy which ultimately ends with him arranging the murder of the woman's innocent husband. Uh, this really is a despicable series of events, a vile misuse of royal power. In the darkness of his actions, they show up even more strongly against the righteousness of this woman's husband. I mean, he's fight, faithfully fighting in David's army, and he, and he refuses to enjoy the pleasures of home while his buddies are in the field of battle. Now, we've kind of muddled the order a little bit, and actually next week we're going to look at how how Nathan confronts David in this sin. We're going to see the story that he uses of a rich man uh, and, his, and his terrible treatment of a poor man. Uh, it's on the back of that moment of confrontation as David finally comes to grips with how vile, despicable he is that he pens this psalm we're looking at today. And so with that as some context, let's now look at the psalm, the first few lines again. He says there, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. As I said, the first question we'll answer today, why is sin such a big deal? What actually is it? I'm going to tackle those bits in, in reverse order. Firstly, what is it? Well, to answer that, I want to consider each of the three words related to sin that David uses in the opening lines of his psalm. I'm sure you noticed them there. They are transgression. See that in verses 1 and 3. 
uh, iniquity. We see that in verses 2, and then we'll see it again in verses 5 and 9. And of course, the word sin, which is there in verse 2 and 3 and 4. Uh, now, these words, they're not the only ones the Bible uses in regard to sin, but they are really helpful in understanding some different dimensions of it. So first up, transgression. Well, transgression, as you, you may have heard, this word literally means to cross over a known boundary or limit. So going where you've been told not to go, doing what you've been told not to do. And so if we were to go to the museum and there was a sign that says, do not touch the artwork, if we reach out and touch the artwork, that is a transgression. Right. So if we think back to David's story, well, in, in giving the law to Israel, God was very clear in terms of the moral boundaries uh, for his people. And, and we see here that David has explicitly crossed many of them, right? Uh, in, in the law, God had said, do not covet your neighbor's wife. And that's, that's what David does. Do not commit adultery. That's what David does. Do not murder. And David has done that. The list could go on and on. So that's transgression, de deliberate, conscious boundary crossing. The word iniquity, uh, it's a bit harder to define, but it's essentially the taking of something that was good and twisting or distorting it out of shape. That word can also be described or, or um, defined as, uh, or translated perversion or corruption or immorality or wickedness. That's different varieties of, of translation. And again, we can see many examples in this story, can't we? I think of God's good gift and intention for David's marriage, corrupted by sin. Uh, likewise, Bathsheba and Uriah's marriage, destroyed by sin. Uh, God's good, good intention for the kingdom and the power and the rule he'd entrusted to David, uh, perverted, corrupted by sin. And, and again, the list could go on, couldn't it? Many things perverted, distorted, corrupted by sin. And that brings us to the word sin, uh, which, as you may have heard again, literally means missing the mark. And so it's, it's often been described as like an archer pulling back and shooting out of the target and then just missing it big time. Um, some years back, I actually got to do some archery and I had, um, I'd watched some archery on the Olympics. I had seen Lord of the Rings and Robin Hood many times. So I was quietly confident that I was going to, I'm all right at sport, not brilliant, but I thought I'm going to go all right at this. Really looking forward to it. Uh, and my experience of that was, was really different to what I was hoping for. Uh, I, I was actually very hopeless at it. And, um, but as I say that, I, I just want to clarify, I actually managed to shoot an arrow right through the middle of another arrow and perhaps in a more impressive way than normal because the first arrow i shot missed the target so massively it actually ended up on the ground over to the right of the target and then as i lined up for my second shot it was so bad it actually managed to go straight through the middle of the other arrow and break it in half so not only did i miss but i i broke something of somebody else's The illustration of an archer missing the target is really helpful with one clarification. Uh, sin is not just an accidental miss like me. Sin is a deliberate, voluntary, and inexcusable decision to fail. Uh, something the Bible says we are all guilty of. And the mark, of course, is the glory of God. Uh, the perfect love and law and life that we were created to live in and enjoy and reflect to the world. 
And it's easy to see David has missed the mark here, right? Okay, so those are the three words David uses here to begin his prayer. And, and hopefully those definitions already help us see why sin is so serious, uh, why it's such a big deal. But in verse 4, David helps us see it's, it's still more serious yet. Um, just take a sec to have a look at verse 4 again yourself. I think verse 4 can catch us a bit. You might think, is, is David here saying that he hasn't sinned against Bathsheba or Uriah or his family, others? I think over times we've perhaps all witnessed altercations and arguments where at the end of it somebody says, well, I'll apologise to them, but I'm not apologising to those people. I think, is, that, is that what David's doing here? Is he just dismissing the harm he's called to, caused to others? Only God affected the short answer is that's not what he's doing here at all. Instead, what David is here doing is highlighting something we so often miss. And that is that first and foremost, our sin has a vertical dimension. I, th I think often we only consider the horizontal aspect of our sin, uh, the, the effect it has on others. I think it's also how we often justify our sin. If, if, it, if they're happy with what we're doing, or if we don't seem, to, if we can't pick up an impact on others, then maybe this is okay. But David here confesses something we need to be reminded again and again: that when we sin, it's none other than the infinitely holy God of the universe we are rebelling against. It's our very Maker and Lord we are spitting in the face of, the one who gave us life and breath and everything to enjoy. And, and because His ways are perfect and holy and righteous. And truly good because his, his rules aren't just arbitrary preferences they, are, they they flow from his goodness this means that when we deviate from them there's only one adjective strong enough to describe us in our actions and it's the word david uses in verse 4 it's the word evil and this is why god must judge sin why he's justified and blameless to do so because that's what evil demands Okay, so that is why sin is so serious, what it is. Yeah, that's all pretty heavy duty. And um, if this is your first morning with us, welcome. We are so glad you're here. Uh, you might be thinking, why did I come today? Uh, as I've been preparing, I felt such a temptation to want to lighten that up a bit. But hopefully it's become evident why we, when it comes to sin, we can't. It's just too important, just too serious. Too important in terms of what it says to God, because of the effect on others, because of what it means for us. Okay, then, what is the basis of David's hope in light of his despicable sin? Well, incredibly, despite his sin, David does have hope, doesn't he? And as we come to this second point, I want to consider two aspects of it. Firstly, I want to consider what David is hoping for. Uh, in other words, what's he asking God to do? Uh, what's he wanting God to do? And then I want to consider what he's hoping in. Uh, on what basis is he asking for these things or hoping for these things? Uh, so what is David hoping for? But as you might have picked up when I was read before, he's actually hoping for quite a lot. Uh, there's heaps of petitions in the following, following verses. And I think if we were trying to summarize it, we'd say what he really wants is for God to totally de-sin him to remove all the trace of sin in his life 
and past. Now, I'm not going to put them all up, but let me just run through the verses so we can see that together. You might like to follow in your, your Bible or device. So in verse 1, he says, have mercy on me. So he knows he's guilty, deserves the full force of God's anger at his sin. He says, don't give me what I deserve, have mercy on me. Verse 1, he also says, blot out my transgressions. So he, he knows sin creates a record. So he asks God to wipe the record clean. He says the same thing in verse 9. Uh, in verse 2, he wants to be washed clean. He realizes because of his sin, he is unfit for God's presence. Uh, he realizes that he's, he's made dirty and defiled by sin. Uh, in verse 7, we've, we find another reference to, to washing, and we're going to come back to that. In verse 10, he asks God for a clean heart. He, he recognizes this sin problem is not just a problem with his actions. It's actually a problem. It flows from his heart. And, and by that, it means... Uh, the Bible means what we love and long for most deeply. And we've uh, heard about Hope Explore before. We've recently completed our most recent um, Christianity Explored course. It's been, been wonderful to get to share that again with a few people. Uh, in, in session three of Christianity Explored, uh, we look at the topic of sin. And one of the key points that's drawn from Jesus' teaching in Mark chapter seven is that it's what comes out of our heart that makes us unclean. And that therefore our deepest problem is the problem of our heart. I think that's what David is recognizing here too. That his heart is so off track, he needs a whole new one. And, and the word he uses here, create, that's the same word we find in Genesis 1 of God creating the world. Create, I, my heart is so rotten, I need you to create a new one. Well, evidently, David's sin has caused him to lose joy and gladness. He asked for that to be restored in verse 8, for the joy of salvation to be restored in verse 12. Uh, evidently, he's feeling the weight of his sin in his body and spirit. He asked for restoration of that. And evidently, as he thinks about his sin, he can't help but think about Saul's sin before him, King Saul. And the fact God did take his enabling Holy Spirit from King Saul. Uh, he realizes God would be right to do the same thing for him. But he pleads, please don't do that. Please don't take your spirit. Please don't cast me away. Instead, renew me, remain with me, save me, uphold me. It's quite an amazing list of petitions, right? A ridiculously bold list of petitions in light of David's despicable sin. Imagine how that would go down in court. If the judge sort of said, you've been found guilty. Is there anything you'd like to say? And the defendant said, well, I am guilty, but I'd, I'd really like you to do this and this and this and this and this. I'd really like you to just show me some mercy, to wipe the slate clean, to restore my joy and gladness. That's, that's what I'd like you to do. The judge would say, you're kidding, are you? And that brings us to the next bit of the question. On what basis does he ask for such boldness and expectancy? Just before we answer that, First notice where he doesn't place his confidence. Firstly, he doesn't ask for mercy on the basis of his circumstances, does he? He doesn't say, look, you put her there, God. You could have stopped me. I couldn't help myself. I was feeling a bit low. It had been a really big day. She was doing this. He doesn't ask for mercy on the basis of his circumstances because he knows they are no excuse for his sin. Secondly, he doesn't ask for mercy on the basis of his past record and righteousness. He doesn't say, look, God, I did sin, but remember all that I've done that's been pretty good. 
in general, I, I'm on track. And I'm the guy who penned most of your songbook, right? I'm the guy who took out Goliath. It actually seems to be that when he thinks about his past, all he can think about is his sin. And I take that from, particularly from verse 5. He said, I was brought forth in iniquity. In sin did my mother conceive me. And the point isn't a crack at his mum's sinfulness. The point is that right from the get-go, he realised that there's been something wrong with him, with his heart. It's not that he became a sinner down the line somewhere. He recognises part of his very nature, that his sin flows from that. And on that note, notice he doesn't appeal for mercy on the basis of his heart. He doesn't say, Lord, you know that deep down I love you. He knows his actions display just the opposite, that he's got this problem with his heart. He needs a new one. I think those are some of the things we can place our confidence in. Maybe you can relate to one or more of those. So on what basis does he come to God with such boldness and expectancy? Well, we find the answer right at the very start of the psalm, don't we? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. The basis of his hope is God himself, isn't it? It's God's steadfast covenant love. It's God's promised abundant mercy. He says, don't treat me as I deserve. Show me mercy because that's what you're like. Just popped up on screen some words. Um, on the one side is the words that God revealed himself to Moses. When Moses says, can you show me your glory? These are the words he introduced himself, revealed himself to Moses. And the other side is the prayer. Just might take a moment to read through and, and do the comparison. There's little doubt the promises of God found in his, his revelation are the basis of David's hope for this prayer, right? Okay, so we've considered why sin is significant, what it is. We've considered what the basis of David's hope is. Brings us to our third point, and that the final two are a, bit, a fair bit quicker. How does hyssop help with sin? I'm just going to read verse 7 again so we can see where the question comes from. He says, Purge me with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Uh, just in case some of those words aren't familiar, to purge is to rid something or someone of something unwanted. Purge. And hyssop is a plant that was very common in Old Testament times. And apparently it's actually very still, still very common today. Uh, Deb went to the nursery the other week, and she, said, she came up and said, yeah, you can still buy hyssop. Now, that was absolutely mind-blowing to me. But for the gardeners out there, they might be like, yeah, of course you can. Uh, on initial glance, um, it's a pretty weird line, right? How can a plant ever deal with our sin? How could a plant ever really remove the stain of our sin? And in and of itself, it can't, can it? Instead, what we have here is a pointer to the thing that can. Now, if you do a search on hyssop in your Bibles, uh, what you discover is that hyssop was commonly used in some of the cere ceremonial purification practices through the Old Testament. Uh, 
We find reference to it in Leviticus 14, in Numbers 19, plenty of other places. Uh, it, hyssop was the plant that was used to spread the blood around the door uh, in the first Passover. It was a very handy plant to use as a brush. And its later use was similar. You dip it in the blood and it was used for sprinkling blood on sacrifices people as part of the, some of the, the, um, the purification processes. So it's pretty significant what David is saying here. Because not only is he acknowledging he needs to be cleaned again, what he's actually acknowledging is something else. It's that he knows his cleansing is very costly. That, it's, that, that for him to be cleansed, another life is going to have to be taken. Now, David lived 3,000 years ago, and uh, he was left to wonder how the sacrifices and ceremonies um, of his time could ever be sufficient exchange for sin. But we live in this incredibly privileged time. We live in light of the fullest revelation of God's glory, God's steadfast love and mercy. Well, we know that these Old Testament ceremonies were never sufficient. That they were only ever pointers to the sacrifice that was, to the sacrifice of Jesus, the only truly per perfect person, God's own son, who came and lived the perfect life, died on the cross, rose from the grave to fully and finally free us from sin. It's quite staggering to read the Bible and discover that this was the plan God dreamed up. Uh, that This was his plan from all eternity. And it's even more staggering to read a gospel and see the absolute commitment of Jesus to this plan. To see he was conscious of it throughout his days. To see he knew just when and what was coming. That he knew he'd be literally spat on and rejected and cast out as every one of our sins does in a spiritual sense that he knew he was going to experience a merciless death, to see that he did experience a merciless death so that we might be forgiven our sins, so that we might receive God's spirit in us, so that we might know the joy of salvation, so that we might be given new hearts and new loves, so that we might know God's presence in us and we might enjoy God's presence forever. Have you accepted Christ's offer of forgiveness? Have you accepted this gift of life he holds out to you? Please understand that your sin is serious, but this gift of forgiveness Christ has won is real. And it's offered to you today by God, no matter your background. In a moment, we'll look at how to receive that. But just in case David's life and, and my words aren't assurance enough of God's heart for sinners, just listen to some words from another notorious sinner who also came to know God's grace. Uh, we find them in 1 Timothy, and they, these are the words of the Apostle Paul. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I'm the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, <clears throat> so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. He goes on to say, to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. Just can't help but burst forth with praise as he thinks about that. Well, that brings us to the final point and the, and the key lesson of this psalm and the place we are going to finish up today. Final question is, what does true repentance look like? 
Well, hopefully as we come to this place, we realize that this is not only a question that those who are yet to receive Christ need to consider. It's, it's a question for all of us need to consider again and again. Because our, our need for repentance, our need for forgiveness, not a one-time event, it's, it's, a, it's a, 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 something we'll experience and need again and again throughout our life. Okay, so what does true repentance look like according to Psalm 51? Four things, I'll just run through them briefly. Firstly, it involves acknowledging my sinfulness to God and my sinfulness towards God. It involves saying sorry to God for transgressing good boundaries he has set, for warping and wrecking what he has made and loved, and for missing the mark he intends for us. And it involves personal ownership, as we see for David. Five times he says mine. He doesn't say our, or speak in generalities, my sin, my transgression, my iniquity. Secondly, it involves asking for forgiveness and renewal on the basis of his mercy and love alone. As we noted before we attempt, before we, sorry, as we noted before, we can be tempted to approach God with details of our circumstances or, or our past achievements, our heart, but none of those warrant God's mercy. Our only hope is his mercy and love and character. And that is our hope and plea. Third step, is accept what Christ has done for you. Now, I mentioned before, our salvation is not something we could ever earn. And we see David here acknowledges that. He says, I, could, I couldn't have offered you any sacrifices, nothing I could have done. It's something that we receive from him. And by receive, I don't just mean th think about or ponder, but accept and believe and hold on to. Uh, you will not experience the joy of salvation. You will not receive renewal. You will not receive forgiveness or transformation if you will not humbly accept what Christ has done for you and who he is. And when you do that, it is life-changing. And finally, true repentance includes adoring God and living in response to his mercy. When it was read before in the psalm, you might have noticed that, that David knew there was no action he could take to warrant God's mercy, but he did see that there were actions that were appropriate in light of God's mercy. And we see these through the end of the psalm. I won't go through them, but they include living in light of God's word rather than iniquity and sin and transgression. They include praising and singing uh, of God and of his righteousness. They involve helping other sinners return to God. Uh, a number of the verses speak of right sacrifices. Uh, again, just want to turn to the Apostle Paul to help us think about how they might apply to us. <clears throat> he says, um, at the end of Romans 12, he says, I appeal to you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, same thing, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. So that's what true repentance looks like. That's what we're each called to uh, whenever we recognize we've sinned. Now, I mentioned Christianity Explored earlier. I just want to finish with a quote from this course. Uh, it's from session six on grace. When someone who doesn't know you, knows you, tells you you're valuable, it might be nice, but that feeling won't last very long. When a spouse or a best friend who knows you well tells you how precious you are to them, it means the world. But when the creator of the universe who knows your heart inside out 
shows you that he would die for you. It changes everything. At the cross, it's as if Jesus is saying, this is what it costs to earn this gift for you. This is how serious your sin really is. And this is how much I love you anyway. We are more sinful than we ever realized, but more loved than we ever dreamed. And that is the gift your creator is holding out to you now. Come to me with empty hands, says Jesus. There's something I want you to have. I think that is the message of this psalm too. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your word and what you've spoken us today through it. Thank you that you are a God who is abundantly merciful and steadfast in your love. Forgive us for our transgression and iniquity and sin. Forgive me mine. Would you totally de-sin us, Lord? We know we have no claim or deservedness. Our hope is your grace and mercy alone. Thank you, Jesus, for bearing our sin and shame in full. Thank you for rescuing us, for dying for us, for raising from the grave to free us from sin forever. Would you change our hearts, Lord? Would you create in us hearts that, that love you first and that long and love the things you love? Fuel us every day with joy and assurance of your salvation and use us to call other sinners back to you. And we pray all this for Jesus' sake. Amen.